Welcome to Good Morning, the podcast on a mission to open up the conversation around grief and loss with honesty and humour. Hosted by Sally and Imogen, we interview interesting guests to hear how losses shape their lives. Join us as we laugh, cry and drop the odd F-bomb. Welcome back to the Good Morning Podcast. And for those of you joining us for the first time, welcome. This is Good Morning, where we talk all things grief with honesty and humor. And today's conversation has a lot of both. And we are Sal and Im. We are. to introduce us. (laughs) For those of you that don't know, I'm Im. And I'm Sal. So Sal, before we get stuck in, what have we been up to in lockdown? Well, mate, it's been your birthday. Happy belated birthday. Thank you. Thank you. Gosh, it doesn't even, to be honest, it doesn't even feel like it was my birthday. It's such a strange year, isn't it? It really is. Like lockdowns, but lockdown birthdays are a little bit different. And I mean, I can't believe I haven't seen you since June. Hello. I know. I've still got your birthday present sitting here, but can we talk about your beautiful birthday present that you sent me, the candle with the crystals and the bath salts? I use those bath salts every night. They've got like petals in them and they smell so good, like essential oils. So you're so sweet. I'm glad glad that you liked um, liked the candle. Yeah, it's like a a crystal um, healing candle. So I thought that was right up your street. I need that in my life. (laughs) (laughs) Need all the healing I can get. And it was Um, our one year, good morning's one year birthday as well. First birthday. We've had lots of birthdays, basically all in the one week, wasn't it? My birthday, good morning's birthday and your mum Rose's birthday too. How was that day for you? Um, look, it was, it was griefy. Um, sometimes I know we've spoken about sometimes the lead up being, um, worse than the day itself, but I actually felt really heavy on the day. I was okay in the lead up to it. Um, and it was on the day that I felt, yeah, just heavy. Like it was definitely a different kind of grief to how I felt last year. Like last year, I remember being very teary and feeling really emotional, And this year, it was just more of like a constant heavy feeling. Like I just felt just really flat and just sad, like this this, this ever-present feeling of sadness. But I also was very much, I went quite deep into like really remembering her and honoring her. So I took Mm. some roses up to the headland where her ashes are. And then I went and sat and I wrote a letter to her, which I hadn't done for quite a long time. Like I do write a lot and I journal, but actually writing a letter to her. I I'm so proud of you for doing that. Thank it you. does help so much. And it's something that we do. Yeah. Tell our listeners to do. And it's such a great, great tool. It, yeah, I found it really, really helped. And um, and I really sat there and just really tried to connect with her through that medium for quite a while. And then I came home and I got the, you know, the classic grief sesh boxes out. So, <laughs> um, and I actually didn't really go there with the photos. Um, I actually went in and I read through all of the letters again. And, and then I went through all of her school reports and all of her like school, like exercise books from different like lessons. So we're talking like, I don't, I don't even have that shit of mine. 
I know. Well, she kept all no, this stuff, right? So I just hilarious. bundled it all into, you know, in, into the sentimental boxes, but I actually haven't, hadn't gone through them in detail. And um, yeah, so it was really fascinating, like all of her old school books and like reading through them and then like seeing at the back of the, the notebooks, like notes that she'd written to her friends saying, have you seen so-and-so is going out with so-and-so? <laughs> and like, it's just like this glimpse of your parent that you... Like my mum was like very like quite straight laced by the book. And so I thought at school she would have been like an A star student and reading through her school reports, um, they were saying like Rosemary is very chatty. She gets distracted very easily, which was exactly what I was like at school. Um, oh, that sounds like me too. Yeah. And it was, it felt like a nice way to be able to connect with her through like through that, if that makes sense. And, yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and just, um, so, but I definitely felt like this week I've had the grief hangover. It's been a heavier week and I've, I have really felt that sort of persistent. Um, it's like, a, it's like an ongoing tiredness as well, isn't it? You know, you just feel just this sort of heavy, tired feeling. So, um, mm-hmm. but I, I feel like I did process some stuff as well. So yeah, good on you. It sounds like you did all the right things, but it's funny though, like how, you know, you were mentioning you were sort of going deeper into learning about your mom and who she was at school and things like that. I feel like when your mom is alive, like I, for me anyway, I just saw her as my mom. I didn't see her as a person with this like history and all these other different things. She was just my mom. And it's like, when she died, I started to get to know her on so many deeper levels. Oh, percent It's interesting, isn't it? And I feel like that's yeah. a common thing that people have actually mentioned before as well. Like the, the relationship deepens and the connection with them deepens. And yeah, it's interesting. Absolutely. I feel so much more compassion and empathy to my mum now knowing what she went through in her life and feeling like I understand more of more sides of her now, which is, I, it's actually one of the things that I was sort of processing when I was writing to her, like, cause I feel like I see her in a bit of a different light now and, you know, stories and things come to light when people pass away and you kind of get to know things that you didn't realize when they're alive. And yeah, you know, I just, I definitely feel like I, I see, different sides to her and understand her from a, a different coming from a different perspective yeah um, and, and I can I sometimes find that hard because I'm like I wish I knew these things when you were alive yeah you know one of the big ones that stands out for me is my mum's mum so my grandma died when I was about nine and I just don't think I ever really talked to her about it again after it happened like I was really young when it happened I was nine I remember it you know vividly mm. and but I just don't ever remember being an adult and having the conversation really about what that was like for her. I remember there was a moment actually not long before she died and it was after I'd had Layla and I was talking to her about one of the um, hospital courses I was doing and how they have this really great uh, service for women without their mum and they have people who volunteer to kind of not take their place but help them out um, when they have a newborn and I just thought that was such a beautiful thing. And I remember telling mm. my mom about it and we, we did actually talk about like her mom got brought up and she said to me, I still miss my mom. And she was in her sixties, you know, she was early sixties. And that, that's sort of stuck with me since then. I'm like that missing never goes away. No, but that was the only conversation we really had about her mom. And I just think, God, it was such a big thing for her to go through. And I just didn't even, 
I didn't even acknowledge it. But, you know, as kids, I can't take that on. Got to get rid of that guilt or regret or whatever it is. It's just, it's, yeah, I think it's common. Oh, like, yeah. Why I mean, am I ugly crying every <laughs> intro these days? <laughs> <laughs> you love an ugly cry, mate. Oh, I'm not putting got a lot of empathy. Um, oh, God. But anyway, this is a whole other flipping <laughs> whole episode, other isn't it? Let's so we're talk a bit off. I know, yeah. <laughs> this is not like, let's talk about what today's episode is about. Let's get on topic. Holy shit. Okay, guys, sorry about that. Um, so today's guest, we've got a very special guest today. You may have heard of Kelly Terranova or already be following her on Instagram. So Kelly's mum, Jenny, has Huntington's disease. And this is a bit of a different conversation because we are talking to Kelly and her mum is still alive. Um, but Kelly is dealing with what's called anticipatory grief. So Kelly is passionate about raising awareness of what she calls life in HD, which stands for Huntington's disease. For those of you who don't know about Huntington's, it is an incurable degenerative neurological disease that is hereditary and affects roughly between three to seven in every 100,000 people. And for those of you, of you that follow Kelly, she really shares the realities of what life is actually like caring for her mum, Jenny. And she's really, really vocal about her anticipatory grief, um, which is why we are we wanted to bring this conversation to you, because it is a topic that we know has impacted a lot of our listeners, but it isn't always as widely discussed as, you know, the grief that can come from the death of a loved one. So yeah, we thought so- it was really important to bring this to you guys today. Yeah, we've been wanting to cover this for quite some time now, and Kelly is the perfect advocate to be doing this conversation. So anticipatory grief, if you aren't familiar, is the grief that can occur before death. It is common among people who are facing the eventual death of a loved one or their own death. So we've wanted to discuss this for a long time, as we've said, and it's an incredibly difficult thing to watch someone you love slowly become more and more unwell. And it is something that Kelly is very open about sharing, which we are thankful for that. Um, So Sal, can you tell us how does Huntington's affect those with it? So the disease affects different parts of the brain and it can impact movement, behavior and cognition. And it can become harder for those um, with the disease to walk, think, reason, swallow and talk. And eventually the person um, may need full time care, which is the case with Kelly's mum. What I really love about Kelly and our conversation today with her is that she is so open about the realities of anticipatory grief and seeing her mum decline in health and change over time. And she's really honest about what life is like as a carer um, and how she manages her grief, you know, how it is exhausting and how she copes on those really shit days. Yeah. And I, yeah, like you said, she was so open and so honest and she wasn't afraid to go there, which we absolutely love on this podcast. And she also talks about how she struggled to come to face with what was happening for a long time. And because it is hereditary and there is a 50, 50 chance of having this gene passed down biologically. um, She talks about how she put off getting tested for a long time and it is a big part of her story. Mm. Um, Yeah. It's, because it's a huge thing isn't it like knowing that you might that there is a test and you are going to be staring your own mortality in the face potentially like that is a really big thing that not a lot of us have to go through in our life like it's a huge huge thing to face up to and Kelly's really really open and honest about how that affected her and how she has 
you know, learned to cope with the stress of caring for her mum. And obviously there are a lot of like happier moments as well that she talks about, but she's very open about the realities of the journey that she's been on. So for any one of you that is caring for a loved one or is or has lived with anticipatory grief, then this conversation is absolutely for you. And we really, really hope that it resonates. Yeah, we hope you enjoy this conversation, guys. So Kelly, it's so nice to have you joining us here today. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to chat. Finally, actually chat properly to you guys. I feel like yeah. I know you, even though I don't. We have been trying to lock this in for so long, haven't we? I know. I know. Yeah. It feels like forever. The day is here. <laughs> <laughs> so Kelly, you, when you were 18, your parents told you that your mum, Jenny, had Huntington's disease. How did you react to such big news um, at such a young age? Um, well, the actual day I found out, I reacted in a very um, nonchalant way, which I think in hindsight was probably shock. Yeah. Um, I was very much like, who else is fine? You know, that's fine. Cool. No worries. That's fine. And she was just so devastated and upset and riddled with guilt um, that all I could think of was, I just need her to know that this, that it's cool. Like, don't worry about me. It's fine. Like, just don't, just worry about yourself. So I was very much like, don't worry, you know, it's cool. We'll handle this very much. Ross, I'm fine, you know, and friends mm. that kind of, oh, who else is fine? But I was not fine. And um, I think in those early years, I dealt with it in a very unhealthy way. I completely avoided it. I was like, this isn't happening. I went off to uni. Um, that was always mum's plan was like, well, you're going to carry on with your life. You know, I'm just letting you know. And I went to uni, completely threw myself into uni. Then the second I got back from uni, I moved to London. I was like, this isn't happening. We're not addressing it. It's not going to happen. And I think because at the age of 18, you know, loss is, you can't compare someone's loss to someone else's loss. But there are certain people that you lose in your life that you know you're going to lose. You know you're going to lose your grandparents. That doesn't mean that it's any less painful, but you you never, as a child, think about losing your mum. You just don't think about it. You think they're going to be very old and in their late 90s and have lived a long life, and you just don't go there. And at that age of 18, you know, having not had any children or anything like that, she was the most important person in my world. Mm -hmm. So it was the worst news I could have ever had. And um, I just boxed it away. I was like, nope. And then even into my 20s, when she started to need help with care, I just I just wouldn't go there. Just I'm not going there. And I just avoided it. I'm very much your daughter and you are my mum. And I'm not I'm just not doing it. And it wasn't until sort of 10 years later, I would argue, in my late 20s, that I had to just be like, this is happening mm -hmm. and you have got to face it and you have got to help look after her and it's not going to go away. Um, and because I avoided it for such a long time, which so many people I think with anticipatory grief will be familiar with, I completely crashed because inevitably what you don't let out is going to come out in the end um so I kind of dealt with it by just completely avoiding it um because it was just too painful I think that's probably a very very common response like you said if anyone's experiencing anticipatory grief but also for anyone that age you know you don't <laughs> it'd be so hard to process that news yeah. um that yeah I just think that, that it's a very very normal and common response and also back then there wasn't 
the grief communities there are now like they're just there was no Instagram there was no Facebook there was no nothing there was just no yeah. there was barely Google you know there wasn't anything what what was available to you then like did you have like any counseling or were there any resources or was it really just this is what's going to happen like this is you know what's wrong and that I was it, it. I Googled it and got... Yeah, I was like, did we have the internet back then? But we definitely yeah. did, didn't we? I'm like, it wasn't that long ago. It's not sure 70 in. <laughs> back in oh, the, the, it's like Sunday night here. Yeah, back in the day in 2001, I went on Google. <laughs> oh, God. And I just found this god-awful, probably Wikipedia definition of this is the worst thing ever there is no good to come from this definition of the rest of my life. And then went on what was the only charity website to a forum, which was just basically like everyone who had not received the right support or resources pouring their grief and pain into one place. And I was like, oh my goodness, this is not good. And there was just no- nothing. So I just went, nah, not going there. And your mum was in her early 30s when she was diagnosed, which is... Sal and I's age, your age, you're in your early thirties, aren't you, Kel? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so we can imagine that that diagnosis would have brought on a lot of anticipatory grief for your mum as well. And in one of your Instagram posts, you shared that when you finally knew enough about Huntington's disease, um, I think it might've been in your early twenties, you asked your mum, how do you stay positive knowing what's to come? Can you talk us through how you found the courage to ask that question? Because we know that that probably wouldn't have been easy for you. And um, what was Jenny's response? So I think, like I said, we very much went through a lot of our life pretending it wasn't there. And that wasn't actually mum. We used to take the mick out of her all the time. because She was so deep and emotional. You know, she would watch like an advert and be crying. And we'd be like, mum, like, come on, get a grip. You know, just about anything. she's just always been very very deep person and we are like banter take the mic and so we would tease her all the time about other things so for me to emotionally open that door to have that conversation with her was very difficult um, for me as a person let alone with how painful it was but every now and again we would just be chatting or just chilling out having a cup of tea or on the phone and I would just feel like I could maybe broach something without it being too painful and she was reading a book by Michael J Fox you know from Back to the Future um, about yeah. his Parkinson's and she was putting some stuff in the washing basket and she came in my room and she was holding the book and I said oh what are you reading and she sort of told me about it and she was explaining to me how it helps her to to read of other people going through things. She said, it just reminds me that I'm not the only person, you know, that's going through something. And that's when I sort of said, like, how do you just stay so positive? And that's when she kind of sat and explained it. And she was in my room, I was just sat on my bed and it was very much just like a, okay, cool, what should we get the kettle on afterwards type of conversation? And it was just the right amount of deep for me to go there. I was like, I've asked the question with, and it was, it wasn't like a let's sit down and have a talk in a serious room situation. It was just a passing comment when it felt like the right time. And I think they were the only moments I found the courage when it felt like there wasn't any pressure and I could just lightly broach the conversation because I never wanted to make her feel worse or like take her somewhere she wasn't ready to go. Um, so there's very few occasions I ever really talked about it to her. Um, Cause it's one of those things like, do we really want to know? You know, in some ways I'm very yeah. lucky that I have, 
time to to actually ask those questions but when it comes to it you're like I don't know if I really want to know like it might be just too much it's a 50 50 chance of having the gene mm-hmm. which really is just the flip of a coin yeah. so how did you cope with making that decision to get yourself checked talk us through that process of mustering up the courage to to find out to see if you carried the gene well it was it was strange because me and my sister I've got a sister and we're polar opposite she's very medical like I would much rather live with a yes and know exactly what's coming than a no so she knew from the day she found out she wanted to get tested and she, at 18 went to get tested they turned her down she was too young and the second she was old enough she went back and got a test she was very black and white about it and knew from day one I need to know um, and she tested negative so obviously 50 50 flip of a coin you're like, well, there's no way both of us have got away with it. And that's ridiculous because you can flip tails twice in a row, but you just, your brain just goes, that's too good to be true. And I was really happy for her, so happy for her, but just the fear that she was no longer in this fire with me anymore mm. was really scary. I was like, now I'm on my own. I'm the, I'm the last person that could have this. And I went through the testing process three times and backed out just through sheer fear. I think where I avoided it wow. for so long. I'd like built up all of this anxiety mm. to the point that I just couldn't I couldn't broach it. And then when I started to think I was symptomatic, I thought I was losing my mind. Um, I I bumped the car. I was dropping things all the time. I was um, very volatile, just flip off, like fly off the handle at the smallest thing. Um, I felt like I was forgetting things. I felt like my balance was off. I just everything. Um, and I was really stressed about it. And then I was um, wrapping journals um, one day, which I do for a job. And I basically um, picked up a pregnancy test. I was like, my boobs, my boobs are killing me. This is really weird. And I was on the contraceptive fill. And I took a pregnancy test and just left it on the side while I was wrapping my books. And then I looked like, oh, I better just check. And then I was like, I'm pregnant. Holy shit. <laughs> Holy shit, literally. Like, what the fuck am I going to do? And I was so, I was so like, shit. And then um, Kev, my partner, came home and I just thought, I've just got to rip it off like a bandage. I've just got to tell him. And I told him and I was like, I'm testing. I'm ringing them and testing. And he was like, hold on a minute because there's a lot going on here. And I was like, well, mm. we're doing it. And I rang the clinic and it was just before Christmas and they don't normally test before Christmas for obvious reasons. And Joe, the lady at the clinic knew me really well. And I was like, you've got to test me. And she was almost like, okay, here we go again for the fourth time. Cause you're like, in and out like every other, <laughs> every other day. <laughs> well, I was like, I'm pregnant. She's back and again, guys. <laughs> yeah, literally that's what she was like. And I was like, Joe, I'm pregnant and I need it now. And she was like, shit so she got me in they tested me on my birthday and I just didn't say anything they must have not looked at my notes but I was just like yeah cool you know and I went in and they asked you all these questions and I was like can we just skip the questions and can you just take my blood and then we went home and Kev was like what do you want to do tonight and I was like I want to watch Dumb and Dumber and get a massive pizza and just sit and fucking eat that pizza and not think about what's happened today and he was like mm-hmm. fine you know and I oh and- my god insane like I, I in some ways I just ripped off the plaster but in the period before that um I actually really found s- something in meditation which old me would have been like do you know what I mean but a lady that lives um near where I used to live who's a good friend of mine is um spiritual healer and I she taught me how to meditate taught me how to like properly meditate and that took me to places 
some people would think that's a bit of a woolly thing to say, but it did. Like she gave me the faith to look the Grim Reaper in the eye and go, bring it on motherfucker. Do you know what I mean? Like I wouldn't have been able to do that if it wasn't for her. Like she, I was so, I was paralyzed by fear Mm. before that. So when you received the news, can you talk us through that period and, and how did you feel? I mean, I can imagine that you probably would have felt incredibly relieved, but then there's also the situation happening with your mum. So it would have been quite a confusing time, I'd imagine. Very mixed emotions. I mean, when I say that, that the thought of my test result didn't leave my head for two weeks, I am not exaggerating. Like it didn't leave for two seconds. And on the day we had to go, it's I hate you know I shouldn't joke about it but if you're a friends fan you know when Chandler can't get married and Ross is like we're just gonna get dressed that's what Kev had to be like he was like we're just gonna get a cup of tea we're just gonna get in the car because I was like I'm not going I'm not going and so we had to do everything in baby bite-sized chunks we're just gonna walk into the hospital doors you know and when we got to the hospital door I was like early and I was like this is the worst thing ever I can't possibly sit in there and wait Mm. I need to go in and out you know and so Mm. we went in and um luckily joe the lady who works there came straight out she was like we'll be with you as soon as possible and she knew do you know what i mean she there was she wasn't gonna make me wait and i sat there and i had all these emotions like did mum sit in this same chair when she came into mm. test the same hospital do you know what i mean did did she sit right here um you know what was she thinking and just this idea this this weird feeling that mum and dad had sat in the exact same position that we were sitting in was really weird and um we went into the room and there's a doctor in there. Joe doesn't give me the news. She's just there for moral support. And we went in and he said, sit down. By this point, I was about nine weeks pregnant. So I sat down and he literally goes, you haven't got it. Like he just oh, picked oh it out. Gosh. So quick. No, it's not like who wants to be a millionaire? It's like, there with the heartbeat. No, he just spits it out did so you feel far. the biggest wave of relief come over you because it was so I burst into tears Kev burst mm. into tears he said we're gonna have a baby which was the first thing he said oh. I was sweating they had to give me the piece of paper I I literally did this and looked up at the lights like I was pinching myself like, I must be dreaming I must be dreaming I couldn't I could not compute after 13 years that that information was now in my brain and mm. um, we walked out of the room and we both just sort of was like, <sighs> do you know what I mean? Like rang my sister and told her, um, nobody really knew I was testing. I hardly told anybody cause I didn't know if I'd then want to give that information to people. Um, got home, rang my mum. And when I told her, she, um, she couldn't talk then, but she kept just squealing and laughing and smiling. Like you could just see that she just had this relief and she'd been struggling with sleeping around that time. And she slept till half past 10 the next morning. And my dad was like, if that's not a mother who has the weight of the world off her shoulders, well, I don't know. And it was, yeah, it was rough. And like, there's this guilt of, but she still has it. And people mm. said all sorts of awful wrong things to me in response to my news, which they didn't mean. Um, but it was just the weirdest time. I felt like I was riding a bike without stabilizers and I wasn't ready. 
And something that isn't acknowledged enough and is an area that we've been wanting to explore for a while, Kelly, as we know many of our listeners can probably relate, is how hard it can be caring for someone you love who has a terminal diagnosis. And you have been really open and honest about how that is something that you have struggled with over the years. Can you talk us through the range of emotions that have come up for you while caring for your mum and how you look after yourself on those difficult days? So, I mean, initially it was very much, like I say, anger and avoidance. I just wanted to be her daughter. I didn't want to be her carer. I was not prepared. I am not a natural carer. Um, my sister, as I said, is very medical and she just took, she just took the reins. And I guess in many ways that made it easier for me, but I was riddled riddled with guilt for a long time of I should be doing better I'm not giving her what she deserves she was a great mum to me and I can't even be there to do these things but the level of distress it would cause me to do certain things was immense and it was very much that I hadn't I just hadn't found the right support to help me deal with it you know and once I had some I had some therapy Um, which I can't recommend enough like the therapy is just the gym for your brain like it helps you to unravel thoughts that you're not supposed to have the tools to deal with Um, I was able to to find more within me to be able to step up and care for her and you know once I did I had this kind of like you can do it and you are capable and you won't crack open Um, and I think as well accepting that when when I have those days, so if I have to go and care for mum for say a 12 hour day or whatever, um, I now know that the following day, I need to put certain things in place that are I'm not going to be able to perform how I would perform had I not had to do that. Um, you know, I find, I don't know about you, I find grief a very physical experience. It's, it's, I'm, I ache, I'm tired, I get migraines. Um, it's not just like, I feel sad and I want to cry. Quite often it's not that. And I, and I'm like, I almost feel like I need to cry, but it's not there. And I just, I, I need to get it, something out of my body somehow. And because I don't, and I internalize it, I then feel ill. I get a headache or like a tension headache, or I'll have aches and pains. And, you know, when that grief shows up, I think the thing I've learned more than anything, and this is purely from um, just that avoidance, hitting that low point and then coming back, is that I have to I have to take baby steps to distract myself, but in a healthy way. I think like we talk about distraction, like it's a bad thing, but there's distraction in the form of scrolling on your phone. And then there's distraction in form of a creative outlet, like painting or dancing, or do you know what I mean? Writing mm. or something that makes like a healthy, like, yeah, a healthy distraction. Healthy. Yeah. Because like, you know, like when we're happy or we're joyous and like we have that saying about how, how wonderful that our bodies have to laugh because we have to get it out. I feel like grief's this, exactly the same. You know, we have to get it out. Yet all we do is internalize it. Um, you know, when I, I owned a dance school for 10 years, and I, I honestly credit that for a lot of my sanity, because it was my getting it out, you know, it's like an outlet. And you're absolutely right, like grief and anticipatory grief. And when you're living it every day, it is absolutely bloody exhausting and physically and I think people don't realize just the physical toll it takes on you and I know that we've discussed like when we've been chatting over Instagram um, I think Im and I did a Instagram story once about the grief face and how like it ages you and you I remember you messaged us and you were like 
oh my god yes me and my this. sister you were like this and because it is such a thing the grief face is real like him and I quite often were like my grief face is on fleet today mate like it's just <laughs> on point <laughs> like it just no, like it's so I went to an event once and a content creator pal of mine was there and she meant so well by this. Well, I like to think she did. I don't know how you can mean well by this. But anyway, we were talking about my age and I said something about my age. And she was like, I genuinely thought you were older than that. And I was like, cheers. <laughs> wow. Just like oh the way you are, you know, the way you are, and blah blah blah, and your businesses and Which stuff. You are. And I was like, I've had a tough paper round, mate. I've had a tough paper round, and let me tell you, that ages you. <laughs> and I was just like brutal. Do you know I mean, and then when you said about grief face, I was like, yes, me and my sister are always like, why do we look like twenty years older than we actually are? You know, like. But it is such a real thing, the grief face, right? Like you, like you look in the mirror, you're like, what is going on here? Like yeah. this is. Yeah, it, and it takes its toll on you physically as well as emotionally. And especially, you know, for you, like anticipatory grief, you are living with it every day and the anticipation of it, like it, like you said, like- There's a lot of shame, I think, around it. And a couple of people messaged me yesterday when I mentioned I was coming on and they were like, just how to be allowed to grieve. And I was like, mm. there is a very real side of that because you're you're very much stuck in this but I should be grateful because they're still here and you know I need to make the most of this time and I need to appreciate and there's a lot of that and I think you know that I talk a lot about toxic and healthy positivity you know and I think toxic positivity is me doing personal care for my mum and being go I'm so grateful that I get to you know change your pants and all that sort of stuff you know like, I love her to so much and it's like I don't share any of that online because I maintain her dignity and we very much mm -hmm. just share the lovely moments but I'm allowed to not like that and I'm allowed to find that sad and I'm allowed to grieve that I have to take my mum to the bathroom and I have to feed her um you know the gratitude can come in the fact that of something else i mean like freddie will walk in and she'll still squeal and the noise will make a noise when freddie comes in and she still gets that quality of life from seeing her grandchildren or it can be that i'm driving home after a shift at mum's and i see a really beautiful sunset in the sky like it doesn't have to be about the mm. thing that's sad like you can be sad about that and grateful at the same time and you do such a a good job of showing sort of i guess the realities of of life with Huntington's on your Instagram. I think what you are doing and how you are giving people who are experiencing a similar thing, a, a voice is so important. So we take our hats off to you because it's not easy. And, you know, there's a level of vulnerability that comes with sharing such, you know, personal um, details and such personal kind of elements of your life. So um, you're just amazing. So just wanted to say like, yeah, we have a lot of respect for what you're doing and, with the anticipatory grief, Kelly, do you find or have you found that people don't really understand it as much as the grief that would come if you had lo lost someone? Have you yes. found like you've had to sort of justify it a little bit more or explain it to people who who haven't experienced it themselves? Yeah, I think um, I'm very lucky in that I have um, a very small but very wonderful circle of friends. And I am the type of person who... Um, wears a heart on a sleeve I'm 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 not I'm not overly private and if I'm pissed off or I'm upset I will just say um but my mates over time I guess they've just got to know me they um they let me just come as I am if you know what I mean like and I feel like if I were to say to them I can't make today they just wouldn't hold judgment they wouldn't be like oh well she's got time to go on her Instagram stories or whatever like they 
they have that emotional intelligence to be like, she's just not got the beans today. Like she just hasn't. I think the hardest I've found, and I know you've talked about this on the podcast, is getting my partner to understand because your friends, if you if there's like a scale of like my the grief I don't show anyone and my grief for yourself, I feel like your friends see this bit, but your partner sees this bit. And so he has seen all of my shades of grief and he knows me inside out. And I think it's very hard for him to sometimes understand um, the ways that that comes out. So one of the biggest ways it comes out with me and I wanted to talk about in terms of anticipatory grief is a lot of people who are experiencing it, whether it's a three month window or a longer window, is they have this kind of like anxiety and PTSD around um, what's coming. So like, I have been diagnosed with PTSD in the last couple of years and I wait for tragedy on every corner that is anywhere. Um, and it sometimes people can make fun of that. So kind of a classic example is we were on holiday last week and Kev went off bodyboarding down in the sea and he went down with our friend um, who was there and his son. Anyway, he's down there for about an hour and I was like, oh, he's been gone an hour and I can't control the situation. I don't know where he is, but it's fine. Like he's just down there. I would have seen a lifeguard if there was anything bad. And then he, the little boy started to walk back on his own and then the dad started to walk back on his own and he quietly said something to his partner and then went back and I could see him doing this. And I was like, <gasps> and my brain just went, Kev's drowned. He's hundred percent drowned. He's not a strong swimmer. Those waves are really big. The lifeguards are there. I come up with this whole conclusion of how he had 100% drowned and that's what had happened to the point that 10 minutes later, I walked down the beach, saw his friend talking to another bodyboarder convinced myself that he was saying I haven't seen my friend for half an hour burst into tears to five minutes later to have Kev walking up the beach like all right and I was like and I just completely went and his friend was like it's all right come here they didn't make fun of me but I've been in situations where before where someone's gone oh chill out you're such a, why are you always worst case scenario like and you're like you don't understand mm -hmm. I wait for this news every single day and I have done for the last two decades like I can't control what happens and I am like that with everything um so if you're a friend of someone or like you know someone with anticipatory grief just know that that it's like you know when you can hear the fridge if you really listen, you can hear the fridge on. That's what grief's like, just bubbling under the surface all the time. Mm -hmm. And it's just being like, that's there. Even if they're having a laugh with you and they're having a crack, that little humdrum mm -hmm. is just bubbling away in the background. And at any second, they could flip into this is worst case scenario. Um, and I think trying to get people to understand that without thinking that you're going crazy it's really difficult um, and I would say for anybody that knows anyone going through anticipatory grief just be aware that they are constantly waiting for the worst news and it will it will it may well come out in other areas of their life you know yeah absolutely and that PTSD constantly living in fear is something that I can really relate to obviously not with the anticipatory grief but I lost my mum under very tragic and traumatic circumstances and um, I suffered with anxiety prior to that happening but I live in constant fear and worry and any little knock any little bump noise drop it's just like the worst possible thing and I hate it because I have a two-year-old daughter and I feel like I'm constantly like trying to hold her back from doing anything and always going, be careful. Don't do that. 
you know, thinking that she's about to die and it is exhausting and people don't understand when you're living in that state and they just say, calm down, you're overreacting and all those things just make you feel so much worse. Um, but it's a full body panic, isn't it? Like a full body experience like, when like you have this. You feel like a terrible person. Like we were at the park a couple of months ago and Fred, Kev was carrying Freddie on his shoulders and I was like, watch that branch, watch that branch. Do you know what I mean? And then he, yeah. he sat, stood me to one side and he was like, you're spoiling this calm down and I got really upset and I said do you know how much I wish I wasn't like this I don't want to be like this and I feel like it was only when I kind of explained that to him that he realized that I'm not in control of it we've come such a long way and he's come such a long way in understanding that I am in a fight or flight mode 99% of the time and I think that's why meditation was really good for me because I have to I have to desensitize like I have to literally make an effort to not have things in my schedule just to desensitize because I'm like a big buzzing battery at all times. And Kelly, talking about like anticipatory grief and, you know, navigating, you know, your life since you found out um, about your mum, you hit a low point in your life. And you said before that it was only when you hit rock bottom that you were forced to gain an even deeper understanding of what it takes to both survive and thrive when times are hard, which we can both absolutely relate to. So can you tell us how you navigated that low period of, of your life, what that, how grief showed up for you then and what it's taught you? So that was when um, so I basically sold my dance school a few years ago because it was just the right time to. And I hadn't realized that where I'd thrown myself into work in those early years of avoiding what was happening to mum, it literally become my identity. Mm. I was the dance teacher who loved her dance school and danced every day. And once I didn't have that, I was like, who is the grown up Kelly Terranova? I never really got to develop her. I don't really know who she is. And I was like a ball of wool just rolling down the road. And I was and I remember lying in bed next to Kev and I am like the most positive person in the world and I led there and I remember being really upset and saying I don't think I'm ever going to get out of this hole like I'm in deep and no nothing I'm doing is fixing it and I'm so scared and that was around the time I closed my business uh, my other business which was the bee's knees because I was like the current setup for the journal has stopped working for me I can't continue to sell that I either need to not sell it or have a new one when I work out how the fuck I'm going to feel better because I just can't. So I had no job and I was just totally lost. And I think a lot of the time we talk about how it's okay not to be okay, which I agree with. And we talk a lot about getting people to accept those things, which I agree with. And what I'd done was I'd, I'd, I'd seen that and I'd gone, right, have compassion for yourself. Let yourself bleed, let yourself feel how you need to feel. But because I'd hit this low, low, low point, I got to a point where I had gone over such a long period of time of compassion that I was like, unless you change something, you're going, none of this is going to change, Kelly. You're going to continue to feel this pain. This pain isn't going anywhere. And I think a lot of the stuff you read about um, getting over something or moving forward, it's all about moving forward to the next thing. But when you're stuck and you're like, my situation isn't going to change, I'm still going to feel this pain. What I didn't fit the mold. I was like, well, what about me? I don't fit that. I can't use that. And that's when I realized that it's a, for me, it was about having a real balance of comfort and discipline. Mm. So I decided to set myself one thing every day that I had to do. 
no matter what. And it was make my bed really nicely, make my pillows really straight, pull my duvet really tight. So it looked amazing. And that was it. If I, if that was all I did that day, when I went to bed, I had a really nice bed to get into. And that was it. Then I had get up and stretch for five minutes in the morning to a playlist. So then that was my, and I just slowly added tiny things without any pressure um, to try and let myself rebuild. It was literally like putting one brick so carefully on top of the other rather than trying to do it all. And slowly I got, I got better. And I think on top of that, I stopped trying to be like, I need to get to there. And I was like, you are going there at whatever speed it happens. You just need to learn to look left and right at the same time. So instead of trying to find this magic cure for the pain I was going through of mum dying, I had this, okay, mum's dying and it's really hard and I've got a shift and I need to go there and I'm going to probably get triggered by feeding her a thick thickened food, which I find really difficult. And when she's distressed, I'm going to be upset. But when I go there, I'm going to make sure that we make her favorite suit because that reminds me of when she was still well and we'll have a memory we've made together. And on the on the way home, I'm going to stop off and get my favorite coffee, cup of tea, whatever from this place. And these tiny little moments again started to feel a bit more mighty because I was I was accepting that I was always going to be on that forward path of pain. But I could just look left and right to take these breathers. It's just about those tiny little moments. And that's how I describe gratitude. Toxic gratitude is, yeah, but at least you're still alive. Cool. Mm. That's really good. And that makes me feel great, which it absolutely doesn't. Whereas spontaneous gratitude is, this is so painful and I'm finding it really hard. Oh my God, look at mum's face when we've just made that soup or we did a beach day not long ago. Mum used to love going to the beach and she can't go there anymore. So I just ordered a shitload of sand filled at the paddling pools. And as much as it was painful and distressing to see certain things that day, the little tiny whiskers of joy she had were actual joy. You know, they weren't just, well, at least she's still here. And mm -hmm. so I've like found these ways that she still lives on in me and thought, how can I bring them to our everyday life? Like she, no matter what happens, she'll always live on in that way. You know, all these little habits and things and routines and, you know, memories, traditions that she instilled in me, how can I weave them into my life and have her live on? And I just think, you know, hitting rock bottom was really, really scary. But if I'd have had just compassion for myself and not gone, how can we tiny, really small, build these tiny little steps to get you back out of this I actually think I'd still be there because the pain hasn't gone away and I don't think I can process it because she's still here and becoming more unwell and I can't, I can't process it I just can't and I don't have the time to process it because I need to be there for her I have to be there on a Tuesday night and I have to be there when a carer calls in sick and at the drop of a hat I have to go around you know um and that was just like a really really big thing for me and I said about distraction like we talk about distraction like it's a bad thing but I was like if I distract myself with something positive you know rather than spending loads of money on clothes I don't need go to the gym or rather than scrolling Instagram and looking at everyone else's life and getting lost in the vortex go out and to a dance class or do you know what I mean do some drawing or something go and have a drumming lesson like that's the latest thing I'm thinking maybe I might start drumming like why not and it's this thing about feeling alive like we always like I need to feel happy whereas actually if the goal is to feel alive then that feeling alive is like going with the rhythms of life 
I cried. That was shit. That was painful. Oh my God, that cup of tea was absolutely immense. I absolutely loved it. I saw my friend, we hugged, we cried, but we were connected. Like feeling alive became the new goal mm -hmm. because that's just you accepting the rhythms of life. Whereas I think I kept being like, when will I feel happy again? And it's like, there's mm -hmm. a part of you that won't, you know, because mm -hmm. you've gone through this really painful thing and you're still going through it, but that's okay. Like nobody feels happy all the time. And I think um, it's, it's learning like with grief and, and, and with hard times to, to sort of live your life around it. Right. It's not like I'm going to get over this or get through this. You might get through certain elements, but it's just, yeah, like learning to weave yourself around it and find a sort of rhythm with it in your life, which it sounds like you absolutely have done. Yeah. And it, it comes in waves, as you know, like it's same with anticipatory grief. I'll have a, every three or four months, I'll have a full mental breakdown and I'm like, I can't do it. I can't do my job. I can't take Freddie here. I can't parent. You need to put Freddie's bed and I, and I can't cope and I cry and I sob hard tears of, I just, I just miss her. I miss her. And it's like, I'm stating the obvious, but it's just like, it has to come out. I have to get it out of my body. And then I'm like, okay, and now we go back to the work and I take Freddie to school and I start to juggle it all again. And then three months later, it all comes out again. And it's just this cycle and this wave. And I think that's what I mean about learning to succumb to the rhythm of life and just being like, as long as I feel alive, crying makes me feel alive. Shouting makes me feel alive. Laughing makes me feel alive. They don't all make me feel happy, but there's nothing wrong with crying and there's nothing wrong with shouting. There's nothing wrong with feeling frustrated. Like... They're just all normal emotions that actually the less I resist them, the quicker I recover from them, you know? I love that. And it's such good advice. And it's something that Sal and I, we are advocates for is really sitting with wherever you are at that day, whatever emotions are coming up, like let yourself feel them and have a grief sesh, we call them. <laughs> like, yeah. And it happens for, for us, like, I think it's sort of every few months now, Sal and I seem to be in sync a bit at the moment with our grief. <laughs> We're like doing grief together, but in it like sinking on the griefy side. Yeah. <laughs> but it does, it's that buildup of frustration and irritability and it starts coming out in all those ways. And it's like, I actually need to grieve. You know, I just need to cry. And if yeah. it's hard, like for listeners, if you're like, how do I do that? If it's not coming out naturally, like we bring it on, like we put on music, the funeral songs, we get out, you know, our mum's handwritten cards and just really invite it in. Yeah, I get now. I watch like videos of when we were younger and stuff, like I get really addicted to those. And you've just prompted me actually um, to say about partners um, and advice for partners and I know you've talked about this before, the whole kind of lack of um, sex drive and all of that. I find that when I'm really grieving, um, I'm more snappy with Kev. That's how it comes out. I'm snappy and I feel like he doesn't understand what I need at that time. And I managed to communicate this to him about six months ago and it just changed our life is I said, I need you to be loving me unconditionally on those days. So when you hug me, I need to feel that you are giving me your love with no expectation in return because my to-do list 
is massive and I'm overwhelmed. And part of my to-do list is making sure mum is safe, fed, alive, kept how she needs to be. And I don't want to feel like if I accept your hug, we might have to have sex that night. I need you to hug me like there is no expectation. I need you to, to literally treat me like a baby, feed me, <laughs> cuddle me, run me a bath with no expectation of anything in return and just take care of me. And you might, you might get a shag, you know, in a few weeks time, maybe, but there is, there is literally no obligation. Do you know what I mean, which sounds so obvious. Are you listening never... to this, Ben? Are you listening? <laughs> and, <laughs> They're probably both gaming. Let's be honest, Sal. <laughs> it's the last thing on their mind. And from our conversation, Kelly, I mean, we've covered a lot of this already, but what we've gathered is anticipatory grief can be over three months. It can be over three years, or as in your case, three decades. And it can be really tough watching someone you love decline in health and not knowing how long you have left with them. And this type of grief is hugely misunderstood and can often be swept under the carpet as well. Um, But we have covered a lot of tips on how partners and friends can support people. But is there anything else that people can do to better support someone who is anticipating the loss of someone they love? I think just another couple of points I would make is if that loved one that they're losing is someone that was perhaps part of your circle before. um, I mean, I'm thinking about a friend of mine that's recently lost her husband. Um, You know, is there any way that you can still include both of them within your plans? Let's say you used to go to dinner together. You know, can you go to his bed and you will go and have a meal there? Do you know what I mean? And you kind Mm -hmm. of grab a takeaway and you're all still like try not to let what's happening isolate them from your situation um there was i mean this is slightly different but there was a brand on instagram that was doing a mother's day celebration several years ago and i was really touched that they messaged me and said i know that your mum might not be well enough for this but we didn't want to not email like and it was a stay at a hotel and i messaged back and was like she's not well enough for that but i just can't thank you enough for just including us and then i they basically sent her loads of goodies and they were like get her to pick what she'd like we want her to feel part of today and then the year later they sent me and my sister to the hotel for some respite so just this kind of like acknowledgement that they're still people they're still here they still want to be included you know again like the beach day we did with mum we could have all gone to the beach for respite that day and left mum with her carers but we decided that we would take the beach to mum's house and it was the best day ever one of those memories we'll never forget and I think just remembering that there's still ways around things, get resourceful, how can you include them? And for the person that's the carer, um, again, you know, letting them know they can come as they are, but also not making their whole, not making their whole identity that they're a person grieving. I don't know about you, but like, sometimes I'm like, I wanna forget the grief for a day. I'm like, I'm sick of my own shit and I just wanna go and get pissed or I wanna just be Kelly who isn't going through this and like I kind of rely on my friends to let to be the person to help me remember who I am without my grief and to like take me out and show me a good time so you know they are probably so fucking tired and exhausted that they won't bother making plans like that they can't be asked and they're just going through the motions every day they're like I've just got to get through today I've just got to get through this week and they're just they can't see that far ahead so by going girls let's go out for dinner like I've booked this day no pressure to come but would love to see you that you that might be just the one thing they're looking forward to Mm -hmm. that they haven't got the energy to plan you know so I would say like those two things are probably quite biggies and just like I said before you don't have to fix it 
you don't have to fix it you just have to listen to them and let them get it out do you know what I mean like be mm-hmm. that sounding board that makes them feel like they're not on their own wise wise words and um it's just it's just holding that space isn't it it's just yeah. being there without judgment is one of the best things that you can do for somebody in that situation yeah and lastly kelly can you tell our listeners about your wonderful bees knees journal um a bit about it and also where they can find it yeah of course so i started this journal as i said um quite a few years ago and then I closed the business and rebranded it and opened it after I'd come back from my rock bottom and it's essentially at its essence it's a well-being journal but it's well-being for people with busy lives so I never really fit the mold before and I'd look at self-care things and think well that doesn't work for me I can't I can't use that so I wanted to build kind of a realist's approach to well-being that people could get stuck into Um, and it's based around making the most of those small moments that you have each day making the small moments mighty um, alongside building basically a structure that suits your life so whereas one of you might love yoga the other one might like running and yoga might drive the other one mental so it's it's about isn't it (laughs) well you love you like yoga and I'm a a runner but you run as well so you're just super yeah but I don't like it (laughs) I just do it (laughs) sometimes this is what I mean it's about building that foundation so that when life's busy and chaotic and painful which inevitably it will be um you have got the right structure to give you the best chance of kind of thriving and then alongside that you've got these little moments which are going to carry you through the chaos they're those little breathers of just turning left and right and it all kind of comes down to this idea that I said before of feeling like we need to feel happy all the time so there's lots of um, opportunities within the journal there's each week there's a there's a little box that says lean in and remember so it's about leaning in and remembering things that are important it's about having these small personal successes for the day so it's these tiny small things that add up to a lot in a chaotic life that we're not in control of that can help us just feel that little bit better so I've got some new products coming um, in the coming weeks I've got a productivity pad um, which allows you to take more space in your day um, in a realist way um, and just some notebooks that are coming as alongside a Christmas product but it's essentially a gratitude journal for realists um, is how I would describe it and uh, yeah you can find it on Instagram at the bees knees journal or via my website which is www.thebeesknees.co and we'll link to it in the show notes but it sounds absolutely wonderful and I think we all need a bit of a bit of that don't we just like a bit of re- bees knees in our life yeah and just realist well-being as well like just being real like because I think sometimes you think right I'm gonna attempt to do all these things and then I know for me they just fall by the wayside because I've been way too ambitious so I think I always describe it in a really simple way as instead of leveling up it's about leveling out there's a yeah, lot of level nice. up out there already and it's about leveling out nice Love that. need a bit of that so Kelly to quote you, the deeper the tragedy, the darker the humour, the richer the gratitude. And we could not agree more. And Sal and I have been so excited to chat to you. We were anticipating this conversation to be good and it <laughs> delivered. So thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Jenny sounds like the most courageous and wonderful mum. And we just wish you guys all the best. Thank, thank you, you, Kelly. You have not disappointed. This has been such a enlightening and deep and 
special conversation. So thank you for sharing it with us. And I think a lot of our listeners, especially those who are going through anticipatory grief or perhaps supporting somebody will really take a lot, a lot from this. So thank you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm so glad we finally got to chat. I really appreciate the platform to talk about it. So thank you. Absolutely love Kelly. I knew this conversation was going to be a good one. We've been anticipating this conversation for quite some time and yeah, she did not disappoint. And we hope that you guys have taken away as much as Sal and I have from this conversation. She's such a brave, brave person and I've got so much admiration for her. Yeah. Um, guys, if you know anyone that um, is dealing with anticipatory grief that might be caring for a loved one um, or has been through a similar situation to Kelly, then please do share this episode. And don't forget, we have a Facebook support community group. It's called the Good Morning Grief Community. It's on Facebook and we'll link it in the show notes and everyone is welcome. It's open to all locations all ages, all genders, and all types of loss. So guys, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, We hope that you found this conversation helpful and that it brought you some comfort. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Thanks guys. Chat to you soon. Bye.